Hello, hello. Welcome to At Home with the Intuitive Cook, the podcast giving a voice to everyday home cooks like you and me. Join me around the kitchen table as we chat about finding cooking ease and inspiration beyond rules and recipes and the noise of celebrity chef culture. It's not rocket science, it's just dinner. Hello, hello. This is At Home with the Intuitive Cook, and I'm your host, Katerina Pavlakis. My guest at the kitchen table today is Michelle Williams. Michelle is joining me from the south of England, where she's a coach and end-of-life doula, and someone who loves travel and food as much as I do. She also has an inspiring story to tell about the healing power of nutrition. Let's dive in. Hi, Michelle. Great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I know you're kind of someone who cooks regularly now, but has it always been that way? No, no. I think the love of food came from a relationship I was in in my early 20s. They were a bit of a foodie and introduced me to the world of food and cooking. And I've kind of carried that on from there, I think. Introduced me to combining different flavors and yeah, going out for dinner or cooking something indoors was a real thing in our relationship. So I think that's where it's come from. I wouldn't say early memories or childhood memories of, of food are are the best. So um, definitely later on. Do you have an early memory of food you'd like to share? I thought about this actually earlier. The two things that are springing to mind are a plate of boiled mint baked beans and mashed potato. Not the tastiest of combinations. And the mince wasn't flavoured with anything. It was just boiled mince, yeah, can of beans and, and mash. In all fairness, my mum used to do a lot of baking. I guess in an attempt to make things healthy, she substituted some things in her baking. The one that springs to mind most is the wholemeal shortbread. I think Wholemeal flour doesn't belong in shortbread, full stop. I mean, I don't make shortbread, but I don't think wholemeal flour belongs. And I think that then probably was the reason I made my way around the rest of the cake tin or the biscuit box to make up for what I hadn't had out of the wholemeal shortbread. I think the sugar fix or whatever it was I was looking for didn't happen. So um, I used to make my way around the rest of the baking, whether it was flapjack cookie or whatever. But um, they're my earlier memories of cooking. But I think, you know, my parents separated when I was about nine. So single mum, working mum, she was still teaching at the time. So, you know, I'm imagining things like the boiled mince, beans and mash on the plate was cheap, easy, not too much faffing, just was quite tasteless. That's all. That isn't something I'd put together myself. (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess, you know, the but tastelessness isn't inherent in in the boiled mince and mash combination. It's maybe that I think you you get that with British cooking or people with you know a British background. Th- th- there isn't that background of using so much herbs and spices, and it's the other cultures that came to Britain later that kind of brought that with yeah. them. And so you can certainly make mince and mash make it very tasty, but obviously you need that sort of background and knowledge to to even come up with the idea, I suppose, that you could throw some spices in. Yeah, yeah. You know, having done a bit of travel, 
it is interesting to see how all these other countries they they do bring all these flavors into things and like you say typical british cooking doesn't necessarily lend itself to that and it's the flavors coming from those other influences i, I think i um, spent some time in albania and it was interesting to see they had a bit of their own cuisine but they also had influences from italy and some of the greek as well so they sort of had a bit of they didn't know who they wanted to be they had a bit of everything again everything had flavor yeah which is very interesting when you see how in britain the sort of kind of internationally influenced cooking has you know taken off so much now hugely yeah yeah so yeah definitely maybe there was a a craving there <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, a need for it. Amazing! I didn't even know you'd spend some time in Albania. I I did know that you are a big fan of of Italy and Italian food. Oh yes, yes. That's why I fell in love with Italy. <laughs> I went on a music tour as I was in my last sort of year at school, and I used to play clarinet in the orchestra and band. And we joined forces with another school. We went on a two-week tour. We'd spent some time around Lake Garda. And then we went towards Venice. The, the first experience I remember was trying to get my head around having pasta for starter, having a like a square of lasagna on my plate and then being fed more food afterwards. It's like, I, I can't get this concept. But we played one evening somewhere and they fed us afterwards. I don't know what was in this tomato pasta sauce. Trying to deduce things from sort of experimenting myself. I want to say it was possibly mascarpone or something of, of that because it wasn't just tomato. There was a creaminess about it. I wouldn't say it was a mozzarella in there. I feel the consistency. It must have been something like mascarpone um, or maybe ricotta. But this just stayed with me the tastiest bowl of pasta i've ever had so queuing lots of experimenting here and then to try to replicate that taste but also uh that was a reason to want to return to italy several years later i need to go back and explore more food there was less need for trying every flavor of gelato as i did at 16 but uh it was each place I went to in Italy, I wanted to have something of the, the local cuisine, the real local stuff. And yeah, Tuscany particularly is an amazing part of Italy for food. It's amazing how that bowl of pasta is still so fresh in your mind, even though you just said you were 16 back then, right? Yeah. It's amazing how yeah. food memories really stay with us. And And was it you said then you went... You know, you returned home and were experimenting to to replicate that. So was it how you got into cooking? I guess having then been in that relationship in interest in cooking, it took I was then prepared probably to start experimenting and I would you know, I, I might have bought a tomato and mascarpone soup and thought, Oh, there's that bit of creaminess, is it that? And so then let's make a bowl of tomato pasta and put that in it, try it with something else and I've always gone back to it being potentially mascarpone. I could be completely wrong, but it was fun trying to find out what that was. But in other recipes, um, I used to do a chicken 
kind of bake, which again had tomato in it and mascarpone through the sauce in that and basil. And I was, oh, is, is this it? Is this it? Is this what I had before? But it's never quite been the same, but it's been fun trying. I don't think we can do it quite as well as the Italians, though, <laughs> if I'm honest. Yes, and I think there is also, you know, I think food memories are also connected to to the whole situation. You know, it's not just the food. It's also, you know, being 16 and traveling in a new country and taking in all these experiences and probably feeling quite grown up for doing that and, and all that. I think all these things kind of are enmeshed in, in our food memories as well. So you can't quite replicate the dish because you can't replicate the memory. Yeah. I mean, I the night before I arrived in Rome, um, when I'd gone back to Italy, it was quite a particularly special night that night. And I chose, a, I went to this pizzeria and chose a carbonara. And this carbonara was absolutely out of this world. And I've labelled it the best carbonara I've ever had. But like you've just said, how much of that may be down to what I was experiencing at the time um, and what I was going through? And could I go somewhere else on a different occasion and have the best carbonara I've ever had? Because it's a different experience going on at the time. So that's quite interesting to look at it that way. I remember... Long time ago, I, I traveled quite a bit on the wild island of Madagascar. So, sort of traveling around okay. there for three months. And we were doing all sorts of crazy stuff, you know, taking sort of overland tracks that were stuffed with people, children, goats, sacks of this and that, and, and sort of, you know, traveling across the landscape. And it was quite a, a long, I think it was a, like a three day trip going across the south of the island from the sort of west to the east or the other way around, can't remember. And one of those evenings where, you know, the truck would stop somewhere and then you would continue the the journey the next day. We ate in, I don't know, in a little hut of, I mean, it was like a, a restaurant, but, you know, it was, they were selling food, but it was yeah. like a little dark hat and it was the simplest of the simplest. And as far as I remember, it was rice with a tiny bit of something and they offered us salt to put on the rice. And, and I don't know what it was about this salt. This salt was, as you said, out of this world. Just putting the salt on the plain rice was just the most incredible thing. So I don't know if it was something yeah. special about the salt or whether it was all this experience. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I remember that salt on the plain rice just making it all kind of go to a different level. Yeah. Yeah. It can be just the smallest, simplest of ingredients. So so you were telling me how you got into cooking in your 20s. So do you remember like a, a light bulb moment or something you realized about cooking? I think it was just that someone had shown me there was more to food than what I was experiencing. That there was just so much more to it. And I think you've, all, you, you've touched on it with what you were saying just now about experiences. You know, I was in our a new relationship. It was a good relationship at the time. And it was something that we, we shared together. And it was something that I learned from that person. And 
you know, that brought us together in many different experiences, whether it was in the home or whether it was out. And I think that just sort of opened my eyes and broadened my horizons. I think I'd always had one view from my family and my growing up and it just gave me a wider perspective, I guess, and what else was possible. Exactly. You know, understanding food as so much more than just, you know, filling your belly because you need to eat. And of course, you know, sharing food is so important in, well, in all relationships, whether it's a romantic relationship or a family relationship or even, you know, friendship. I mean, sharing food is such a, brings us humans together. So I, yeah, I know that yeah. in my relationships, food has always played a really important role too. Yeah, I think it kind of gives a foundation and then you can sort of expand from there, can't you? Like what we're doing now, you know, that f food's the thing that's brought us together, but where's the, it's going to open the doors to other things too. And I think that's, yeah. that's what's nice about it. Yeah. I guess this is now some time ago. So how is your relationship with cooking now? How has it changed or has it expanded from there? Or what kind of cook are you now? Still growing in confidence with a bit more experimenting and trusting myself. I've always tended to follow a recipe if it's like a specific dish. I'm confident with putting different flavors together. I might not feel I need a recipe for that because I've maybe used a recipe in the past and then gone, oh, well, those two flavors work together. So I'm going to put that in a bowl with several other things. But it's very much about nutrition for me now as well. But still getting enjoyment and satisfaction out of it. I struggle to understand people that, I mean, we've all got our own opinions um, and I'm accepting of that. But I do struggle with the idea that some people say, oh, I could just, if I could just have what I need in my diet in just a pill and just take that and I'd be happy with that. Don't have to worry about food. Like, oh, oh, all those flavors and those textures. Uh, what happened to them? I, I wouldn't enjoy that. I love food too much for that. But I have been on a bit of a health journey and have really learned to, I've really seen how the impact of good food, good nutrition can have on the body. To some extent, I'm still working on it and working through some health stuff at the moment, but I've really seen how it can heal the body. And that's been quite eye-opening for me. And with those changes I've made over the last two and a half, three years and see where I'm at now, I've, I've recently done a gut reset. It's the same kind of program I went through three years ago. And the ease in which I sailed through this gut reset because it's become this way of eating more cleanly and paying attention to what I'm putting into my body and is it actually going to nourish me has just become a way of life. So it's been that much easier this time around. I always cooked my own food. But I was still processed food off the supermarket shelf and a jar of sauce. And there isn't any of that anymore. And I've just kind of sailed through these three weeks recently. And it's been really positive to see how much I've made those changes. So I guess it's changed in some, to some extent. It's more focused around not just enjoyment and pleasure and not considering what impact certain things will have on my body. Um, but taking that into account as well, but still wanting tasty food because I still want to enjoy that experience. And you have found that you can change your diet 
towards eating, you know, better, more healthily without losing the pleasure. Have you? Oh, 100%. 100%. I absolutely love just making a bowl up of some kind of grain, sometimes some plant protein, whether that's uh, chickpea or beans or lentils, different types of colourful veggies, then adding some herbs, maybe adding some spice, adding nuts, seeds, dressings. Yeah, it just that's one of my most, my favourite types of food, whether it's some kind of Asian or oriental type flavours going on or whether it's more Mediterranean. I love eating that way. I just think it's about what you can add to your plate. Focus on what you can add for that diversity to be feeding all the gut microbiome, all those diverse. It, it's not hard. You can, you know, instead of buying a can of beans, one type of bean, buy a can of mixed beans and you've ticked off five different varieties. Same with a bag of salad leaves or buy a thing of mixed tomatoes, uh, mixed colored tomatoes or mixed peppers. It's just little tricks like that that can then just boost your health. Yeah, it works for me and it and it's it stayed tasty for me. Yeah, and I, I like what you said to focus on on adding the good stuff, adding nutrition, yeah. adding color, adding variety rather than focusing on all the things you shouldn't be eating to just keep eating the good stuff and when you eat more of the good stuff you'll automatically eat less of the processed stuff just just because it's just automatic really. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I'll dip my toe back in and it's like, actually, that, that's not doing anything for me. My taste buds have changed. When you're eating cleanly, it helps to manage that hunger. I don't really find that I need to snack during the day. I don't snack between meals. Yeah, and that's not because I made a conscious effort not to specifically do that. It's just because just the change in the way I'm eating, the change in my diet, I just don't have that need. So yeah, it's been a learning curve, but it's also been nice recently to reflect back and see how far I've come and know that it's had a positive impact on my body. I, I didn't have a menstrual cycle and through the changes I made, um, I've managed to bring that back, which has been quite astounding really to see that the body can heal itself that way. This is quite astounding, isn't it? And And as you said, you know, if you nourish yourself, then that constant hunger goes away because your body is getting what it needs. So it's yeah. it really makes sense. And of course, when you nourish yourself, your body also has all the, the ingredients, all the molecules to, to heal itself because the body has that tendency towards healing. It has this amazing ways it repairs itself all the time. But if you if the onslaught is more than it can manage, then well, then you can't heal. So that's that's really amazing to hear. What kind of impact it had on your health just by doing from what you say really some, you know, simple changes. It's not that you suddenly gone on some all out crazy strict no. diet or anything. You've just been swapping out kind of less nourishing for more nourishing foods. Yeah. I mean, I used to walk down a supermarket aisle, the wrong ones. Uh, and if there was a new, you know, it might have been a biscuit, it might have been a cake, it might have, whatever it was. But, oh, that's a new flat. I need to try that. But that's fine. But when they bring out 10 new ones, it's like but that's a bit much for my body to handle. And I would, I just want to try all these different things. Now I want to try different things, but they're good for me. And 
I don't walk down those aisles anymore. Or sometimes I might walk down them and go, look what you don't do anymore. Isn't that amazing? And there's no desire to want to do that because I know how it feels when I do it and it doesn't, it doesn't feel so good. But it's been a journey. It's been a journey. And I think all the information is out there. Some of it can be very confusing. I've been lucky to have some help along the way um, and some support. And I've done a lot of my own learning. So I've got lots of knowledge, but sometimes we can hear um, this information, but it's just not the right time to receive it. Um, it wasn't the right time 10 years ago. It wasn't the right time five years ago. But I came back from Italy three years ago now, and I was, I was just ready to give my body a, a break. I'd done a long walk and I needed a break from pasta and pastry. And that was what prompted me um, because it had been a lot of pasta and pastry, but I justified that with what I was walking. So I came back and that was my motivation at that point to do that. And I haven't looked back, really. There's still some healing going on. But again, I'm approaching it from a natural process rather than taking medication if I can help it. Because I believe having already seen the evidence that the body can heal itself, I'm maintaining that approach where I can. Yeah, well, makes sense once once you realize the power of your own body. Yeah. So what is, I mean, you did just talk about bowl food. So what is another favorite thing to eat of the things you eat these days? You have mentioned in the past an Italian dish to me. Oh, I have. I, I was thinking, shall I mention that or not? I could talk about this dish forever. It is my absolute favourite. It's a bowl of bean pasta and it's got cannellini beans and bolotti beans in it, some smoked pancetta and rosemary and chilli flakes. And that's it with some stock. And you then put the pasta in about, depending on how you like your pasta, about 10 minutes before the end. And with the pasta cooking in the stock in that way and in the bean juice, it just gives the pasta a completely different texture to when it's just been boiled in water and then added to a dish. And it's just the most comforting bowl of food. The rosemary, it's the chilli, the heat of the chilli, the, just that thing that rosemary does. I find it with anything, rosemary. And then I think the pancetta, because I have tried it without the pancetta as well. It can be omitted for vegetarian. Just feels like there's something missing. It would be nice to find an alternative smoky thing that might work that's not the pancetta maybe i need to experiment with that but yeah it's just the beans and it's the pasta it's the texture of the pasta and that, that warmth from the chili it just works it just works and like, give me that at the weekend and a glass of bread and i'm i'm fine it just works sure. uh, it sounds amazing and i still you know i've heard you talk about this before but i still haven't tried it But I'm I'm having sort of two weeks of being on my own in the house coming up. So uh, having a bowl of something that I can eat over a couple of days sounds just like the right time to maybe try this. So I will. <laughs> yeah, because you could put you you can cook up all the beans and then you can perhaps separate them into a couple of portions and then just cook each portion with your pasta in when you're ready to have it. And I I sometimes. Again, it's what I can add. So I sometimes might stir some spinach through it so at the end or some chopped up kale or cavolo nero just to give some greens in there. 
if there's no greens in it, I do tend to serve it with a rocket and avocado salad with balsamic and olive oil, maybe, just because I like to have a bit of green with my food. And now, my kitchen friends, it's time for a quick break to see what I've been cooking up for you. If you ever feel trapped by recipes or wish you could get more creative in your kitchen, I made a free mini course. It's called Ditch the Recipes, and it's a short series of five emails that will help you get started on your intuitive cooking journey. Sign up on the website at theintuitivecook.co.uk slash free or find the link in the show notes. And now let's get back to our conversation. One of the latest things that I'm enjoying, one of the latest things is I'm leaning more towards having a savoury breakfast where possible. I find and this is something I've learned from the glucose goddess and through my own journey with my health, but I actually find my body responds better to having a savoury breakfast and ensuring there's enough protein in it. So eggs are a great thing for me. But one of her one of her recipe suggestions was tuna on hummus served with avocado and rocket and then lemon juice, oil and seeds. And I was a bit I've not had tuna and hummus before and I'm not a massive tin tuna fan either. So I'd steered away from tuna for a long time and gave this recipe a go. Loved the different textures. So you've got the creaminess of the hummus you've then got the texture of the, t- the the tuna you've got the crunchy seeds and then you've got the oil and the vinegar and it works it works so it's become a bit of a go-to when I've been playing with it adding harissa or what I have on the side of it making it more of a dinner if I want it to be a dinner but I've identified a tin of tuna that also a game changer it's not the cheapest tuna but it re-kindled um, my relationship with tuna it's just so delicious it's a what i think it's a white tuna but if you've got a good quality tuna that's a really nice dish just to, it's simple but it packs a punch with all the protein and the flavor and the different textures it really works and i've done i've even done it with a piece of tuna steak now because making more of a meal of it and there's something about the tuna and the, and the hummus works together so simple but tasty yeah, it's not going to be the bean pasta, but yeah, give, th- give that one <laughs> yeah. a go. Yeah, because I think I probably come from the same direction as you. I'm not a huge fan of tuna and the concept of tuna and hummus, again, kind of isn't necessarily the first thing I would think about. But, you know, now that you spoke about it so enthusiastically, I'm kind of really <laughs> curious to try. I'm definitely enthusiastic about it um, on tuna. I wasn't a fan of tuna steak until I went and bought some from the fishmonger the other day. And what a different flavor versus tuna steak out of a packet from the supermarket because I've always felt it doesn't taste of much and I cook it, whatever I flavor it with, I haven't overly enjoyed it. A whole different ball game from the fishmonger. So of course, anytime I want fish now, off I go to the fishmonger first thing in the morning. It's so different and it's just, yeah, reinforce that shop local where you can and you know whether it's the farm shop or the greengrocers or, or whatever if if you could do that just a different flavor altogether and I've because I've been doing this gut reset it's been important because I've, I've only been largely eating fish so I've wanted to enjoy my fish so 
uh, I've become a regular at the fishmonger. And, and that is another great thing about local shops, isn't it? That it's obviously the food is much better because I think local shops, whether it's a fishmonger or the butcher or the greengrocer, you know, by definition, their supply lines are kind of away from mass production because all the mass produced stuff, whether it's salad or tuna, goes to the supermarket. So when you step into a local shop, you just immediately have access to a different supply line that is yeah. more likely to be better just because smaller is better, you know, in the age of everything being mass produced. Yes, it is yeah. more expensive, but it's just so much better. I've I've recently, I kind of generally eat meat that I have raised myself, including yeah. chicken. But the problem with that is that it's always, it's been a chicken that has been several years old. So it's, you know, you have to slow cook it. That's the only way. So, okay. and no way, no way I'm eating a supermarket chicken. So then suddenly it's like, okay, but if I want a roast chicken, I'll really have to go looking somewhere. So I I found these chickens that, you know, they're pasture-fed, organic, and from regenerative farming and all that, and, and you can order directly from the farm. And again, you know, as you say, with a, with a fish, the difference in the taste is just, yeah. it's out of this world. A hundred percent. You know, it is four times more expensive it is very expensive, but when you have paid so much money to get a piece of something that so much care has been in, I bloody make sure to use every single bit of the chicken, you know, at the very yeah. end when there is nothing left on the carcass. I'm still pulling bits of meat off the chicken. So, you know, the two of us have four or five meals out of this one chicken. Plus, you know, yeah. I have frozen the bones so the the chicken broth is coming up and then if you look at it that way it's only a little bit more expensive it's not that much yeah. more expensive anymore so i was just going to say it, it, even like going to the fishmonger i think two or three times last week i said oh can i have salmon fillet please so just for one i said yes and he gave me a piece i walked out and i thought well that's gonna do two people so Yes, it was slightly more expensive, but it was also very generous and actually was going to be two dinners. And that was the same with my tuna steak. Like, I don't need to eat all of that in one meal. So, so cut that in half, half of it in the freezer or half for someone else. It's like actually I've ended up with probably the same amount I would have got for two meals in the supermarket, but I do know it's going to taste better. So yeah, because I eat a lot of plant-based food as well. You know, that's where I'm not spending out perhaps on meat. So it's not as expensive. So I don't mind paying for the good quality fish and the good quality egg for where I am having animal products. And I think this is also maybe a more traditional way of eating that, you know, the meat or the fish was not something that people would eat every day or three times a day, even the way I know people have grown up going back 50 years, that is the kind of meals you would have on the weekend and then maybe the leftovers going into the week. But, you know, you wouldn't have a roast yeah. dinner every day, of course not. But you would no. have that on a Sunday. So, and the rest of the time, you'll probably just 
eat plant-based anyway, you know, with bits and pieces thrown in. I find that very helpful to try and imagine what would be, you know, the way people ate before. Yep processed foods took over. And this is often also a really kind of practical way to orient yourself towards what is healthy and what isn't healthy. Just think about what people would have done when you couldn't just walk into a supermarket and and buy all this packaged stuff. And and that also links into something else. Funnily enough, it's been on a couple of podcasts recently, and I've then looked into it a little bit myself because of my own health healing journey. But the concept of fasting, that also is, well, how it was back then. Food wasn't available all the time. And so people would feast and then it would be famine. And I just think that's nicely kind of linked with what you were just explaining then about it wouldn't be meat all the time. Actually, what would what else would they have had? Oh, well, when in the absence of that, it would be plant-based. And I think the same can be said for this this fasting as well. It's, you know, we we just have instant gratification with a lot of things and food being one of them. And we don't, our body's not having a chance to just break down what was put into it several hours ago before we've put something else into it. And we're not designed that way. That's not how we're built. But that's a whole other thing. But I found that sort of supportive of my journey too. What's nice is I've I've been learning recently how there are people out there who don't have a one size approach fits all, and looking particularly at how fasting can be, how it works for women. There's been up until now very much a generic approach for everybody, but actually with women's hormones the way they are, there there needs to be a different approach, or it will have a negative impact on their health. And so that's been quite interesting to sort of see that it is something I've dabbled in a little bit before but just for health benefits really but it's it's been interesting to learn how linking it back to how we've eaten in the past but also how it's specific to women's health and also women's health in relation to the cycle of the moon it's it's fascinating i find it all really fascinating and i could talk for hours yeah and it's also you know fascinating in a kind of scary way how how we're losing our connection with all that wisdom of our body and and all this traditional wisdom. I mean, people did not come up with the idea that, for example, the moon is influencing what happens on the earth and also what happens in our body. This has been observed for, for centuries and millennia, and only because people observed it has it become something that, you know, entered traditional wisdom. It's not something that, you know, has been pulled out of thin air. We wouldn't know about this, and there wouldn't have been these traditions talking about that if it wasn't something that it was observable and and repeatable and people you know knew about yeah. it and we have this idea that we have to prove things by science but actually what science is doing a lot of the time is that it's proving what people have known for for millennia already 
science is catching up with tradition. You know, olive oil is is one of my kind of favorite examples on this. This whole thing, you know, is olive oil healthy? Is it not healthy? Should you be cooking with it? Should you not be cooking with it? It's, is it dangerous to cook with olive oil? And then you look at the Mediterranean cultures who have been using olive oil for everything, including cooking for millennia. And and people around the Mediterranean are arguably amongst the healthiest in the world. And and now we have signs showing that indeed, you know, it's not about the smoking point that makes an oil develop dangerous chemicals. It's it's a completely different process that makes oil unhealthy. And olive yeah. oil is actually one of the best oils to to be heating to, you know, normal temperatures. But again, you know, traditional cooking, you wouldn't have an industrial deep fryer in, in any kind of traditional no. cooking. And even if you deep fried something at home, because it is so messy and so complicated, you wouldn't do it every day. So it's not a problem to have some fried food now and then, but if you have fried food all the time, well, you wouldn't do that at home. But then we go and get it from the chip shop every single day or whatever, several times a week or every lunchtime. And that, again, that is not something that our body ever evolved with. No, no. You just made me laugh there. I have got an image now of being out in the wild with some deep fat fryer. Um, it's just just not not how it's ever been. Yeah. So yeah. So what what would be some of your you had this whole journey for yourself with your health and with your cooking and the way you change your eating. So what would be a couple of practical tips you would want to share about making cooking easier, more flavorful, healthier? I think I mentioned one of them. It's thinking, what can I add? What can I add? Whether it's the sprinkling of seeds, a bit of chopped up fresh herbs that's knocking about in the fridge, what can you add? I think the pouches of ready-made grains and lentils and things are convenient and are really great for easy meals, quicker dinners or lunches. I think they've, they're a good base for bringing in that plant variety, but also giving you that base and to bulk things out. Adding those types of things to a soup can increase the nutritional value of a soup. You know, you might have a tomato and, I don't know, tomato and something soup. Add in some quinoa to that. You've made that more of a meal of that. Add in a bit of protein, plant protein to it. And I think, I think a lot of people still get caught up on calorie content, fat, or worrying about things like that. But actually, not all food is equal. Yes, you look at a fatty donut and you look at a fatty avocado, but what are the nutritional benefits of each? Is what I'm putting in going to nourish me? That's kind of a question I work from. I don't know if that they're really tips, but they've helped me. Oh, they're wonderful. They're wonderful tips. Yeah. Why Why is that not a good tip? So that's about adding nourishment. How do you add flavor? What are your tips on that? Because you're, you're big on flavor and enjoyment of your meals too. I quite enjoy adding, even if it's just a bit of harissa spice to something, if I've got something that's a bit Moroccan or I'm having some stuff with hummus or I've made one of my salad bowls, adding some harissa or something into an olive oil dressing, adding things like fermented food, 
Um, I might stir some sauerkraut through something because, again, good for the gut, but you've got a bit of different flavor in there. Or kimchi, if it's if I'm doing something oriental. Things like miso, miso paste, I think is a good one. Tahini is good in dressings for adding a different creaminess and flavor. Herbs, like, you know, I said earlier, rosemary just transforms that pasta dish. Um, without the rosemary, it just wouldn't be the same. Adding basil into a salad, basil, fresh basil leaves or squeeze of lemon. It, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be big. I might drizzle something on something, think, oh, it's still missing something. But again, there's a big thing around salt. And I know you've talked about this. I've always been frightened to add salt to my cooking. I'm not eating lots of processed food that's laden with salt. So I can have some salt in a dish I've prepared and it does transform it. Um, it doesn't have to be much. But it just makes a big difference. I think the thing about salt is that it it enhances the flavor of what is in your pot or on your plate already. So if that is yeah. full of flavor already, just that little bit of salt is making a massive difference. If something is without a lot of flavor, like all this processed food stuff that needs the flavoring and the salt to taste of anything whatsoever or it would on its own it just tastes like cardboard so this is why processed food is so laden with salt because there is nothing else to it and i mean the data clearly yeah. shows that you know more than 60% of our daily salt consumption comes from processed foods and and very specifically even from foods you would not even think they're salty like breakfast cereals and bread. So it really doesn't come from adding salt to your cooking pot. No. Yes. So, yeah, wonderful. These were some really good tips and was really fascinating to hear about your journey to health through food. Thank you. It's been, yeah, it's been good to talk about it. And I hope, you know, if it inspires anybody else, then, then that's a good thing. Yes, exactly. It's yeah. always good to to see someone who does it. And I think you just showed us how it really doesn't have to be difficult, only only consistent, I guess, to go with what nourishes you. Yeah. Yeah, consistency is is key with it. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending that hour with me, Michelle. That's great. It's been really good. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of At Home with the Intuitive Cook. Check out the show notes for links and tasty morsels. And remember, fresh episodes are served up every other Friday. Subscribe to stay tuned and keep exploring the joys of everyday cooking. Until next time, stay curious, trust your taste and don't forget, it's not rocket science, it's just dinner. <laughs>